0: Welcome to Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. I am Jane Siegford, the convener of the podcast. The original commitment of Views and Voice Above the Noise was to hear from people with differing experiences and viewpoints from around our state. I often ask Mia Yurick, our Director of Professional Development for MASA, to share names of people who are involved in ideas that others would like to hear about or who have experiences that we could all learn from. I recently asked her if she knew of someone who has experience with some of our Native American schools because there was a recent article in the Star Tribune that our Native students are suspended more and disciplined more than any other population. Right away, she suggested Superintendent Janie Blanchard, who is currently superintendent of Chisholm Public Schools. Chisholm, Minnesota is in the heart of the Mesabi Iron Range in Northern Minnesota. Prior to this position, Janie was teacher and administrator at Baganogishig and Cass Lake. Because of her experiences, Janie exhibits knowledge and skills in learning from and working in cultures other than her own. Before I begin the actual interview, I'd like to share a little background on Indian education. There's a great PowerPoint available online, which was assembled by Dr. John Rayner, R-E-Y-H-N-E-R, professor at Northern Arizona University. He has written many books and articles about Indian traditions, culture, and education. The PowerPoint quote, the history of American Indian education from 1829 to 2013, was published in Ed Week. Here are some interesting historical facts. The U.S. government in 1819 in the Indian Civilization Act gave $10,000 a year to religious groups who agreed to live among and teach Indians in schools, which began to be known as mission schools. By 1886, the government began schools off the reservation, which were boarding schools, half-day academic and a half-day vocational training. They were run like military schools. The first such school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, was started by Captain Richard Henry Pratt, who gave a speech in 1892 which gave to us his racist operating principle, Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Of course, I wonder how this affected the education girls were getting, or not getting, in these schools. In 1934, under the Johnson-O'Malley Act, the Secretary of the Interior, who is still in charge of reservations, was allowed to enter into contracts with states and territories to pay for the education of Indian students. Before this, the government had worked through individual contracts with school districts, Schools can still receive this JOM funding and federal impact aid for those students who live on non-taxable land or military bases. As recent as 1966, the first Indian-controlled school was begun and was located on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. In 1969, the voice of a Minnesotan was heard at the national level, which led to the Indian Ed Act of 1972 which was sponsored by Walter Mondale, Ted Kennedy, and Peter Dominic of Colorado to provide funding for special programs to help Indian students on and off reservations. Dennis Banks, another Minnesotan and co-founder of AIM, the American Indian Movement, in 1972 co-founded what he called survival schools for Native students. There were two such schools, Heart of the Earth in Minneapolis and The Red Door in St. Paul. In 2015, the Minnesota Department of Education published information called Indian Education in Minnesota, Past, Present, and Future. Did you know that there are 11 sovereign tribes representing two major peoples in Minnesota? The Ojibwe Ojibwa, or Chippewa is the fifth largest population in the U.S., surpassed by the Navajo, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people. The Ojibwe communities are Mille Lacs, Lac, White Earth, Leech Lake, Red Lake, Bois Forte, and Grand Portage. The second community, the Dakota communities, are Prairie Island, Shakopee, Mendoowakotan, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that, Upper Sioux, and Lower Sioux. Today in the nation, there are 183 Bureau of Indian Education schools. In Minnesota, we have several schools on reservations, yet over 50% of our Native American students attend public schools. There is additional funding for those schools if the population reaches a certain percentage. Sadly, the graduation rate of our American Indian students is the lowest of any subgroup in our state, hovering around 50%. Native peoples are a strong part of Minnesota history, however... Not all of this history is something to be proud of. Did you know Minnesota was the site of the largest mass hanging in the U.S.? In 1862, the Native peoples who had been forced off their lands by whites were promised food from the government. When the food was given to white settlers and the Native peoples were starving, a battle for food occurred. This battle became known as the Sioux Uprising. When the Army intervened, President Lincoln and Governor Alexander Ramsey decreed that 38 Santee Sioux men were to be hanged in Mankato. Originally, there were to be 303 men, but Lincoln didn't think our European allies would support us in our civil war if that many were hanged, so he reduced the number. Boarding schools where native languages were forbidden were common. It wasn't until 1978 that a law was passed that said it was no longer illegal to practice native religions. On the positive side, as a state, we have had, and still do, have several activists, authors, and poets who have contributed greatly to literature and historical information. For example, we have Louise Erdrich, who is author of 15 novels and a writer of poetry, who is a National Book Award winner. She writes of current life and culture, particularly of a certain group in North Dakota. In addition, she has a bookstore in the Kenwood area of Minneapolis. Another author is Frederick Manfred, who has many books about the lives of Plains Indians. One of his books, Scarlet Plume, is a fictional account of the Sioux Uprising. Winona Leduc has a book called The Last Standing Woman about seven generations of life for Native women. Kent Nurburn's book, Wolf at Twilight, is about kids from the Red Lake Reservation and the horrors of boarding schools. There are many others. All of that being said, let's now hear about the actual experiences of Janie Blanchard. She began teaching elementary in Ohio after earning her degree at the University of North Dakota. After learning that she worked well with students who were labeled EBD, she got her master's in special ed with a focus on EBD. She used that degree in Park Rapids for 14 years.
1: finally got a principal's job at Baganagishi, and I was there seven years. And I knew my time was done. It's very hard for a non-native to work at a reservation school. And uh, then Castle Lake, which was just down the road, their principal, Patty, was retiring. And I, I had been telling her all the way through, when you retire, that's my job. I'm going to Castle Lake, that's my job. Went to Cass Lake, was the pre K four principal. 600 kids, all under the age, you know, the fourth grade and under. I had beautiful, beautiful children. And realized about four years in that it was time for me to try superintendent. I, in that time, I got finished my doctorate and knew that um, I'm looking at retirement sooner than later. And needed if I was ever going to try superintendent and see if I liked it, now was the time. Started applying. Patty Phelps interviewed me. For the job in Chisholm, uh, told me that I was a lot like the former superintendent that was leaving in kind of blunt, and they would love me, and I got the job.
0: Here are some of the issues that she dealt with in Cass Lake.
1: Actually, it's more than 90% are enrolled Native Americans, whether that is Leech Lake, Red Lake, White Earth, or another tribe somewhere. Uh, 85% of the kids were, uh, we were free and reduced lunch, so we were full, free and reduced lunch. With, we wrote a grant, and we were, we had full breakfast, full lunch, all free, and then we also fed them a supper. At, at the high school fed more than we did at the elementary. They started with the high school, and they were, they're feeding up to 150 and 200 kids a night.
0: And how do you afford that?
1: It's through a USDA grant.
0: Recently, the brand-new Buganagashi School opened up to much fanfare because the condition of the previous school was horrendous. Janie talks about that, and she also talks about the political nature of Indian education.
1: That was horrible. Horrible. I mean, it, it was as bad as everybody imagined, you know, mice everywhere. Uh, one of my, what did she teach? don't remember what she taught, but she said, you know, I have got them all named Oh, and stuff, you know, because we had so many mice, and it was cold, it was, it was just a, a metal building, and it was never built to really be a school. It had housed at one time um, all the shop and stuff. The problem was uh, that's a Bureau of Indian Education School. And the land and stuff, and then you get into the whole hierarchy of Bureau of Indian Education as opposed to Bureau of Indian Affairs. The land is owned by Bureau of Indian Affairs, but the education part is overseen by Bureau of Indian Education. And both those entities are trying to replace schools. So they had a list of the worst, you know, one uh, whatever. Well, we were sitting at 84 for years, years and years. White Earth, the Circle Life got theirs, and we were sitting there for years and years, and it did take uh, uh, Kobachar and those guys and them pushing it and getting it pulled off the list and money set aside for it.
0: School is more than just a place to teach the three R's. Jenny talks about the importance of schools like Bhagurad I
1: think there's a very definite place for Bagunagishi. There's people up there who don't feel that way. Uh, The culture is dying. And I I don't know if you know that Baganagishi has a full immersion program. It's very interesting because even within the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian Education, I had one of the ladies tell me we needed to close that immersion program and teach those kids English. And I went, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, wait. I just looked straight at her and said, we both know if you learn any language, you're better at English. So don't... You know, what's the difference if it's Anishinaabe or if it's Spanish? Their English will be better. So, And that was fascinating. That part of it was fascinating to me because I'd sit out in that immersion program. It was totally separated from the main body of the school. And I'd be sitting there with elders, and they were creating Ojibwe Anishinaabe words because there's no first language for computer or... I'm watching a, a, their immersion program, teaching on a smart board in Anishinaabe. You know, and it's like, wow, there's a place for this. And people need to recognize that it's not a dumping ground, which some people thought it was. All the kids who couldn't survive in a public school go to the bug school. And it's not that. It is people truly dedicated to the preservation of their culture.
0: We talk about the need for project-based learning and community schools. Here's an example of multi generational real life projects that really honor the community.
1: Regular band or music, they get drum and dance. And there's nothing like going to work and it is, they're harvesting wild rice and you watch them traditionally doing it, uh, throwing the husk in the air as they're cleaning it. Uh, Using the fire, there's always a fire there. There's always elders at the fire, and so and then kids like one day, when I was coming to work, someone had hit a beaver on the side of the road. You could see it. One of the teachers stopped, got it, brought it in. The elder took, dressed it up, and was cooking it and showing the kids how to use it traditionally. They always bring in, you know, and then in deer and they process deer and then they use it to make uh, uh, snowshoes and those kind of things.
0: Here's what Janie learned about being respectful to other cultures.
1: We have to honor the culture. We have to believe in the culture, and we have to believe that it has a place in this world, that we are not here to assimilate, which is a very negative word up there. You know, and that, that hasn't worked. It's been tried and tried and tried and it hasn't worked. We need to honor the culture. We need to understand that just like as we're looking at an Amish community or a Mon community, there are unique characteristics for the Native that and honoring who they are, honoring their past and uh, honoring the struggle that they have even to come to school, living in extreme poverty. Poverty. When I taught work there, and even in Cass Lake, I felt like I was working in an urban school set in a beautiful up north setting because we dealt with gangs. We had two or three major gangs. We dealt with poverty, drugs. All those things that you see in an inner city is there. And we have to help kids understand this doesn't have to be their life. This does, they can come out of this. We have to show them resiliency. Uh, One of my favorite Native American teachers is teaching in Catholic now, at fifth grade there, and, you know, she was saying she's Native, and she she pulled herself out of things, and she said, I'm going to hold them to my standard because I want to honor the struggle they had to get here today. That's a whole different way of looking at it. Yes, it was hard for them to get up. Yes, they might have not had food. Maybe they didn't know where they were going last night. Maybe they were, you know, in a new place. And that's not all of them, but that's a big issue on the reservation, and she said, I'm gonna honor that by holding them to my standards. And I thought that's very powerful, it's very powerful for non-Native teachers to hear.
0: Would you believe the information in the Star and Tribune that Indian kids are disciplined and suspended more often than others?
1: I would say it's true. Um, I went to all my years there, there was some training, and it was all about some of that pieces, and some of it is the way we teach our children. If a police officer pulls over, say, a car of white kids, or, uh, the kids are going to sit there, yes, sir, no, sir, how can I help you, sir? Oh, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't mean to do it, where the native kids have not been taught that. So they give attitude, or, or, and in fear, they give attitude. They, they might run, and that causes arrest, and it causes legal issues. And some of it is just plain old training of this is how you talk to someone in authority. This is how you do this. This is how you take who you are and work in, in this world. Did you did you teach that? In we percent? worked at it as did much you? as we could, yes. But it's heartbreaking there, too. Um, you know, and some of it we have to teach teachers what poverty looks like. And we have to separate. A lot of times teachers, especially if they don't understand the reservation, will say oh, that's just their, their, That's the Native American way. No. What you're seeing is the result of poverty. That's not their culture. That Their culture would never allow that. You know, I had one kid being non-Native um, say to me when I was disciplining him, you don't like me because I'm Native. And I looked at him and said, that's not true. I'm unhappy with you because you are not honoring who you are with your behavior. Your." are Tenant says, you will respect your elders, and you were disrespectful to an elder. I'm upset with you because you're not honoring who you are. And he, he had nothing to say to that, of course. But I mean, that was the, what you have to change that look and say, am I dealing with the issues that poverty cause? Because the culture is great, and, uh, and the people immersed in it, they don't want their kids going down these paths. They don't want to lose them. And so it's understanding and being able to separate what you're seeing.
0: How do we get people to understand the Native American culture?
1: How do we do it with any culture? I mean, it's training, it's talking, it's, it's, it's being public about it. It's, it's, you know, for myself, when I'm with my friends, it's talking about you don't understand. You know, here's what it really looks like, and here's how great it is. I have loved my years on Leech Lake Reservation. I, I loved it. I loved working in that population. I miss it some days. Um, I miss what's been hard is in the last two and a half, three years, I have lost five students, four to suicide, and one in a car wreck just a couple of weeks ago. And that's hard because they're 14, 15-year-old kids, and they just don't see any hope.
0: How do you help them
1: see hope? Giving them the skills to be successful, giving them those resiliency skills, talking to them, letting them know there there is another world out there. Sometimes it's just experiencing that there is another world. Some of those kids have never have maybe gone to Bemidji, maybe they come to the cities, maybe maybe to Fargo, Mm -hmm. but they don't get. There's
0: so much more out there. So would you say that poverty and mental health are two of the largest issues? I would. I would. What would you want other superintendents
1: from around the state to know? I would want them to know that when they looked at a kid who was Native American, I, Native American because that's what we're talking about, they look beyond that kid and look at where he's coming from. A lot of my kids, you know, we would talk a lot, and I know Caslick has gone to where the phones have to go in the pocket, and that, that was hard for kids to do because that was their only link to that home and they might need that to know where to go that night, especially if you're dealing with homelessness or if you're dealing with those issues. Uh, those are things that you need to understand that if that kid doesn't want to give you his phone, there might be a deeper reason than him just being 15 and being 15. That could be there too, very easily. <laughs> They're normal kids. Uh, but look beyond and see what the home is and see what look at honor the struggles that kid has gone through to get to school that day.
0: Did they have mental health services available right in the schools? At one time, they
1: did. Baganagishi was able to do that. At one time, there was a clinic there where they could doctor in that. The bureau kind of said no to that, and said that space had to be educational only. But I think it's going back to it. Like, Cass Lake has, we work in coordination. We, see, I'm still there. Um, They work in coordination with Leech Lake Behavioral Health. They have three or four counselors in each building. Leech Lake hires them and they're their counselor, Social worker, uh, psychologist is overseeing most of it. And so we were getting more and more mental health services.
0: Working with Native American schools is a different political structure than many of us know about.
1: Because Bakunagishi is, I always said I had two boards I had to deal with. You, uh, the Bureau of Indian Education gives the money to uh, Leech Lake, to the reservation. Okay. The reservation, in turn, establishes a school, put a board in place, but yet oversees all the operations and everything. So you, you, know, the money flows that way. So if you want to get the mental health on a reservation, and if I was mad, I'd be talking probably to Leech Lake Behavioral Health and say, can I get some people here? Because he has enough population, I think he could do that. So you're talking to the, to the tribe, and asking them for help. They have a, you know, they have a hospital there. They have now they have a dialysis clinic they put in the in like They have their own methadone clinic because they were taking so many people to Brainerd every day, getting their dosage and coming back. It was taking a full day, so they built their own methadone clinic right there, four blocks from the elementary, and that so. they need to talk to the tribal leaders and that's all part of what MDE is pushing too. We need to be in coordination with the tribal governments and working with them. You know you you need to honor the fact that they are a sovereign nation. Rochelle Johnson was my was my superintendent my first two years at Baganagishi and she taught me so much and we were in a meeting with then the chairman tribal chairman Amy Kobachar and some other people working on getting a school at that time and she looked at me and she said you do understand that the tribal chair is like a king because we are a sovereign nation and so you do need to go through their process to, to help with the reservation.
0: Janie talked earlier about giving hope and teaching resiliency and the idea that there's something else out there. So how do we give hope? How do we give them the idea that there's a chance of a different life it used to be that a high school diploma was a ticket to something else, but what are some more things that we need to do to help our kids to know that there is the hope of a different future?
1: Things, I think, has been a really good stepping stone. And when I left Castle Lake two years ago, the graduation rate was around 49 50%. Okay. So my, my 124th graders, by the time they got to graduating, it might be 60 kids. So... Um, But one of the things I think has been really good because we found these kids, these students struggled with going to a four-year school right away. So now all the reservations have tribal colleges, two-year, you can get a CNA, CNA degree, you can get some electrical, you could, there's a whole list of trades and other things you can do, or get your generals and then go to Bemidji State. Bemidji State would honor those credits. So Bemidji State, and I think that's a great stepping stone for these kids. I, I think they need that a little bit more. Has that worked? Has that helped? I think it has helped. I don't know how much. I haven't seen the statistics for it.
0: Janie is now the superintendent of the Chisholm Public Schools. Chisholm is a town of about 5,000 people located in the middle of the Masabi Iron Range. During the early 20th century, the Iron Range was one of the most ethnically diverse areas of our state, attracting Finnish, Slavic, Italian, Czech, and 40 other ethnicities, bringing diverse food, customs, and values. At one time, the Finns made up the largest group. There are three Iron Ranges in Minnesota, Mesabi, Vermilion, and Cuyuna, with the Mesabi being the largest. Iron ore was discovered near the Vermilion Range in 1865 at the end of the Civil War. In 1892, the first ship was filled with iron ore from the Mesabi Range. In 1952, 80% of the iron ore from U.S. mines originated in Minnesota. By 1984, the last shipment from Mesabi was sent confirming the depression on the range. People lovingly refer to this area as Da Range. It's known to be an ice hockey capital of Minnesota. Bob Dylan memorialized it in 1963 with North Country Blues and in 1964 with The Times They Are A-Changin'. What sets the range apart from the rest of the state is the work ethic and the pride in working hard. People are proud of the fact that they survive tough long winters and baking summers. Although towns are rather close together, they each have their own personality. Plus, each community is known for its pride in their schools.
1: The Range is a unique place, and I didn't realize how unique until I got immersed in it this last year. Um, Poverty again is a big issue. Chisholm has, for years, been a strong educational leader. There are people who have come out of Chisholm Well, the former CEO that started Pepsi was a Chisholm graduate. Mm -hmm. They have more doctors and lawyers and architects and these people who have left Chisholm and have made the names for themselves. Chisholm is going through a a, a little bit of a change. All of those houses in Chisholm, right now 47% of the people living in Chisholm rent. Now we have a transient population. Open enrollment didn't help Chisholm. Because some of the perception is hibbing is better than Chisholm. Hibbing education is better. And that's not true, but that is a perception. So one of the several things I'm dealing with with part of that is when I got there the the district has a what had a one point two million dollar deficit. Uh, so cuts have been made. And of course, the rumors right now in town are that we're eventually going to close the schools. That's not true. That is not my goal. That is not my mission. My mission is to bring kids back to Chisholm, to hang on to them. We, you know, we we're right there. And and my high school principal says whoever drew the boundary lines didn't like Chisholm because we're just a very our boundaries are actually quite small. And yet we have we bring kids from Heming. We bring kids from Heming. We bring kids from this area called Side Lake in, but those are Hibbing kids. Um, and then we have Mountain and Beal just five miles away. And that's another district. And they're just now finishing a, a huge new school, which I could lose some kids who want to go to the new pretty school, whatever. But having said that, those are issues I'm fighting. You know, I'm fighting people, the perception is that Chisholm is closing. The perception that, you know, it's uh, not, a, not as much a quality as it used to be. But it's, that's not true. And I'm having to do a lot of selling of Chisholm. I need people to know that we have a career in technical. Our carpentry shop kids who build Habitat for Humanity houses, one every year, has, um, if you go through their whole program for two years, you come out with 600 hours towards your journeyman in the Carpenters Union. They're working with the welders, they're working with the electrical to try, the unions to try to get the same thing. I'm working on uh, getting a grant, a substantial grant, and it's a two it's four-year phase grant, pilot, where the first year we're gonna give all the kids 412 Chromebooks. The second year, we're going to invest with Cisco, who's come out with a new program, where if you put these uh, big TV things in your classroom, any kid, anywhere, can log in on any device. Doesn't have to be an Apple, doesn't have to be a Chromebook, doesn't, it can be your phone. So if you're not in school that day, you can log in and be in class. I think it's gonna change education, to be honest with you. There's some fear there, and, we ha- and we're gonna pilot it. We wanna see what are the pitfalls we found. You know, We're gonna pilot it, pilot it for the range. Now we can reach out to homeschooled kids and say to them, you need a physics class? I get, we get you don't want to be in the building. We get that you don't want your kid exposed to the school. But you know what? You can log in for an hour. I can count your ADM for that hour. And so we can start reaching out and bridging that a little bit more. Uh, my high, one high school assistant principal was talking about, currently, if you have three tardies, then you are suspended for a day, whatever. We're working on that, too. Um, I know. I'm working on that. Uh, but I can take, that kid can log in from home, sit, be there, take class, doesn't miss class. I get to counting, and he doesn't get in trouble for being tardy. You know, for me, that, all of that's a win. I had a kid last year in one of the grades, has some mental health issues probably not, well, it should be diagnosed with a certain disability, but has not been yet. Parents have been resistant to it. Missed 120 days of math and reading, because they were first thing in the morning. Could make it in by 11, and his mom would tell me, he's up, I just can't get him out the door. Let's let him log in. Then he's not missing class, and that, you know, that's another plus.
0: In her past positions, Janie was an outsider coming in, a non-native for one, and then as an outsider as a non-ranger coming in to the Iron Range. She has learned how to honor the local cultures, particularly as an outside female leader.
1: I would love to write a book on the difference between how women have to lead and how men have to lead. I knew I'm going to a small town. I'm going to a town that has had... Their superintendent has been there 15 years, and he's a local boy, and, and 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 he is a marvelous man. He is good. I'm coming in, woman, not from the area. I had a lot of strikes already against me when I walked in. So one of the things, when my first husband of 42 years is, comes to visit me up on the range, we take turns. He's got a painting contracting business in Park Rapids. Mm-hmm. Can't leave that. So one of us travels every weekend to see that. When he's in Chisholm, we, I, I don't care how, if I have a headache, I don't care. Uh, we are going to hit Valentini's, which if you, if you know the range, it is the restaurant on the range. We're going to hit probably Jim's uh, Club. And then we're going to hit Tom and Jerry's. And this guy that I asked to help me, Tell me, you do realize that political deals are sealed in Tom and Jerry's. And we without, you know, I didn't know that when I started, but it helped that we walked in Tom and Jerry's and the owners and them are big NDSU fans, the North Dakota State football, effect Well, we're NDSU fans. So every Saturday when we're there, we go sit in the bar with them and we watch the game with everyone. And this guy that I asked to help, he goes, you know, those guys at Tom and Jerry say you're okay. And I went, just that one simple act of making sure I go out on the weekends when I am there, have one drink, maybe two, no more, and maybe my husband will stay and have quite a few because he can. You know, I can't. Paid off in the political game already.
0: Any good leader realizes that one has to adapt to the community's culture. And Janie has done this, even though she was an outsider on the reservation and is coming in as an outsider on the range, she has to use different strategies.
1: I couldn't do that on the reservation. On the reservation, it had to be my walk. It had to be, be me dealing with families and saying to them, I'm not here to change you.
0: But in Chisholm, she needs to use a different strategy.
1: Where do people hang out? What, where do people go? Where do people go in, in Chisholm? Well, they're going to go to Valentini's for supper, maybe. They're going to go to Tom and Jerry's and drink. That's the place to go. And sometimes we'll even go to another bar called Sidelines. And then, of course, Snickers Pizza. And people see us in the community doing those things. And that, that says to them, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You know, you just got to and just listening to people talk. There's a lot of elderly people in that town who love their school They can tell you all about Bob McDonald and when he did the state basketball run for all those years and the state championships he brought to that school. They can tell you that. They're proud of that school. So, you know, you have to tell them, I'm not closing it. That's not my role here because they need to be reassured.
0: Janie's passion and dedication come across loud and clear when she talks about her vision for her schools and her district.
1: There are (laughs) great teachers in Chisholm. They're, They're great They just need to change that perspective. I was just watching Dwight Jones today, um, you know, he's National Geographic, and he does this thing on clearing your vision and changing your lens. Well, you can see it this way, but if you come over here, it's the same thing you're looking at, but it looks differently. And we've gotta get quality education, but we have to give it in a different way. And we have to understand the lenses our parents are looking through. When a parent comes in angry, what is their lens? What? Why are they? Why is that lens on them? And a lot of times, the lens of the, the really angry parents are the kid, the parents who are not successful in school. So they're bringing all of that back stuff in, and and we have to be better at handling that. And I think the whole bullying issue isn't. Yes, it's there. You know, I would never say it's not there. But some of it is. I don't think we're listening to parents. When they come in and say, "My kid's being bullied," what they're really saying is, "I don't know how to help my kid. I don't know how to teach them that this is no, you know that they can handle this. And we have to look more at the, the victim and say, "Why does that bother you?" Yes, it's wrong. Yes, we're, gonna, we're going to discipline and that. But we need to give that kid the skills to be able to say, "I don't care."
0: What are the concerns in Chisholm about mental health issues for kids and school violence? The,
1: the issues are, again, the mental health issues. What are we seeing in kids? One of the great things that Virginia School is doing that we are following is they're bringing a program in, and it's actually out of Hutchinson, called Reach. And what uh, Dr. Schmidt is saying is that that program... Well, even at our uh, Northland Learning Center, where our ALC is, they started a REACH program and where they would maybe have 20 kids drop out, only five dropped out last year. We see this as a program to help kids, and it helps kids be proactive in how they handle their lives rather than reactive. School violence is a reactive. It builds up in a, um, a, a student, person who is mentally ill. It builds up in their head till they react to all of the pain that they're feeling. And we have to we have to start teaching kids how to be proactive, how to deal with that, how to deal with what happened at home last night, how to deal with, you know, if the police came to your home last night or or mom and dad got in a huge fight, rather than um, saying, "Well, it's school. Let it go." Now, I will say on the reservation, we did say that to kids at times. We would say when you get on our bus, until you get off our bus, you need to let it go. We would also say to kids, I can't teach you how to survive out there. Bus to bus, there's no fighting. We are Switzerland? But I can't tell you never to fight because you might have to fight to live. But I can tell you here, you're safe and I don't want you fighting. With that. Chisholm's a little bit different and, and part of my lens problem is I'm coming from a where I saw a lot of family violence. I saw that. In Chisholm, where I'm looking at these behaviors going, yeah, okay. And the teachers going, no! You don't understand how bad it is. And I'm going, okay. I kind of do, but not really, you know. But we do see, we're seeing a higher meth use. We are seeing more poverty kids coming in. So I need to get the teachers trained in things like ACE and REACH and, and teaching them how to deal. Again, that's changing their perspective. These aren't the... Chisholm kids. Uh, the majority of the kids are good kids. But we've got that subgroup coming in now, and we need to know how to deal with them. What type of leaders do you think
0: we need for the future?
1: Visionary. What's that mean to you? It means looking, quit looking at how we've always done it. These kids are not how we've always done it kids. They're never going to be on basic foundational skills. We need to teach them how to be digital citizens how not to be a bully on Facebook, because they don't use Facebook, how not to be a bully on Instagram, how not to be a bully on Snapchat, how, how to be smart about what you say, because that's always there, and someone can dig it out. We need to teach them how to be digital. I mean, when you think about it, you can go to the doctor online now. Who would have thought that?
0: So how do we teach the kids of today and prepare them for the future?
1: We need to teach teachers how kids learn today. And those are the courses that we need. It, it's the, you can go online and, and find plenty of, of resources. They're there for you. You pick a program, they're there. But how, how do you teach a kid who has come from a meth home? How to learn. And I, I've said for years, especially working with a lot of fetal alcohol kids, or meth kids, we just don't know how to teach them yet. They can learn. We just haven't found out that pathway yet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that pathway is going so fast that we can't catch up with it and say, no, this is how they learn. But we need to find that pathway. There are ways for them to learn. We can do that, but we need to become more open to new ideas, more envisionary in that, oh, you know, if I have them watch this, maybe that'll work. Or, you know, not, stick, not assume that school is brick and mortar.
0: Like Shane Safir in the book, The Listening Leader, Janie Blanchard talks a lot about the emotional components of being an administrator. It's important to listen and to hear what people are really saying and really meaning and taking the time to do that.
1: But I think we need to teach administrators that things like parents are our customers. With open enrollment, we have to give good customer service and I'm not about I'm learning how to do facilities, but I'm more about working with the families and getting them where they're at. I'm more about the instructional pieces, and I'll learn about the facilities as I'm going with that. And I, I think our administrators, you know, yes, we need that finance course, yes, we need, but we also need training in the emotional intelligence, in understanding and reading body language and understanding that we have to stop and think, what are they really saying? What are they really doing saying here?
0: Jenny talked about learning the culture of the range, and I asked her why she thought that she was hired.
1: Uh, Because I was different, because I wasn't part of the good old boys club, because I wasn't, the, the community expressed to them their concern that they will bring in the same old and do the same old thing. They brought me in for change. They brought me in because I am so different from that, and, and I know that. And it, it's kind of—it hasn't bit them, but I had to close our fitness center. We had a community fitness center; ten thousand dollars a year was going down the drain. I couldn't—I cannot finance that. I have several men in town who that is their fitness center, and they actually have gone to board members and said, "You should have hired someone local." She doesn't understand the Chisholm way. She's not, she doesn't belong here. And they've said that to board members. And the board members say, she's got to trim her budget. We agree with her that this, we could no longer continue this program. And so they've backed me. But they've had that conversation with quite a few
0: people. She doesn't understand us. As with other superintendents whom I have interviewed, it was apparent that Janie Blanchard is excited about being a superintendent and working with kids, parents, parents teachers, and communities. She is very aware of cultural differences among communities and uses affective skills to develop relationships and figure out how best to work with the pride of each group to provide a quality education no matter what. Her skills in listening, demonstrating empathy, frankness, and hard work were apparent. With each interview, I ask the interviewee if they have final thoughts or words of wisdom to share. Here is what Janie said
1: but we got to care about the kids
0: and the parents. Thanks to Janie Blanchard, superintendent of Chisholm Public Schools, for taking the time to be interviewed. I leave you again with words from my favorite philosopher, Dr. Seuss. Unless someone like you cares a whole lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. This is Jane Siegfried, convener of the podcast, signing off. If you would like to contact me, my email is jlsigford at comcast.net.